Hello, it's Jack Tudor here from Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to a musician or sound artist about three records that are important to them. This time my guest is Adam Baker, a musician currently based in Berlin, and one of the most prolific musicians that I can think of. He is in so many projects. Uh, He releases a huge amount of music each year. Just as I spoke to him for this podcast, we had three imminent releases that had had his involvement that we were talking about. So he does music solo. He's also in a band uh, called Nadja with his wife, Leah Bukharev. And then he's in various other collaborative projects such as Cordal, Whisper Room, Adoram, just uh, such such a huge amount. I'm missing loads there. Arc, you know. Basically, if you go to aiden-baker.tumblr.com, click on music, he's got a list of various projects there. Uh, and you can also find means of listening to that music as well. It's really wonderful. I think he's got a very distinctive sound. So there's a thread running through all of these different releases, even though they touch on completely different areas of music. This was a lovely chat. The sound quality isn't 100% brilliant, but I think you can make everything out just fine. If you're liking the podcast, then please do go rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts um, or your podcast app of choice. That would be heaps of help. And as always, if you go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening, you can find various notes about Aiden's picks and Aiden's music. I'll try and cram in a few links to where you can listen to his music directly so without further ado Aidan Baker on Crucial Listening Aidan Baker, welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you for having me. Now, as we were just talking about before uh, we press record and started the show, you've got a flurry of releases coming out and in the, uh, I guess, the ebb and flow of your creative output, this seems to be a period of flow (laughs) with several things coming. Can you tell me about the releases that you've got currently occupying your uh, schedule right now uh, well the the first one that's actually uh seen release is uh whirl uh, a duo with myself and thomas yamir the, the drummer a swedish drummer uh and it just came out last week with dio drone records and wolves and vibin street records a co-release between two small labels here in europe and uh, it was recorded a year ago, a live performance on the MS Studnitz, which is sort of a floating art center slash squat in Hamburg on an old fishing boat. And uh, after that, there's a, a new quartet of mine called Orchard, which also was recorded 
about a year ago, uh, recorded last October in France, and will be coming out in a couple weeks. And this is sort of a spontaneous quartet put together by uh, Stéphane Grégoire from Ici d'ailleurs Records. Uh, he had this idea of gathering musicians that he knew and worked with together, but who had never worked with each other, and trying to make an album. And so that's out in um, September 22nd. And uh, lastly is uh, another group, sort of spontaneous group uh, of myself, Thor Harris on drums and Simon Goff on violin. And that is the most uh, recent in terms of actual recording. Uh, we recorded in June this year here in Berlin. And uh, it was just an afternoon session. And while we all knew each other, we'd never actually played together before. So that was sort of a, a, an equally spontaneous trio, I guess. And that will be out in November on Geezer Records. And so there's two there where you have been collaborating with people with whom you've never had any musical interaction previously. Yeah. Well, that's I, I have played with Simon before in, in different groups, and Thor has contributed uh, drums to some of my albums before, but we never played in that in that uh, in that trio setting altogether like that. I always, in fact, it came up on this podcast when I spoke with Lawrence English that watching Lawrence mastered this album, by the way, just to make that connection. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was, um, in fact, that makes total sense because I understand um, the depth of his love for swans is, uh, yes. is quite intense. Um, we were talking about watching a band like The Necks, who have been collaborating for so long together in an improvised setting, and right. the anxiety of that initial moment of waiting for the first person to do something. <laughs> and that arises with people who've already got a basis for knowing that they can get something off the ground. How do you feel uh, in those situations where you're thrown together with people with whom you've never collaborated in that particular type of circumstance? and you're trying to stimulate music out of that situation, is that something that you find comfortable, or is there an anxiety to that? No, I, I generally find it fairly comfortable. I, I don't think I feel anxious about it at all, actually. I'm more excited, really, because there's the whole infinite possibilities in front of you. And that moment when somebody plays a first note, sort of starts it and, and leads leads where you're going with whatever you're doing and uh, invariably somebody will end up leading to a certain degree but even if if no one sort of takes charge that that sort of moment when things start to coalesce is, is a really magical kind of moment for me and with uh, the collaboration with simon and thor given that you've had interactions with both of those musicians previously did you have any expectation of the direction that that one would take and if so where did that sit in relation to the actual end product of what you produced to be honest we didn't have any expectation at all <laughs> <laughs> we just thought we would try and see what happens and uh, i think everybody was kind of surprised not really knowing where or what direction we would end up 
taking. And we kind of move between a more sort of Krautrocky, space rock sort of feel, and then sort of this ambient textural uh, thing, which I think was kind of surprising in one way, and then the other way kind of expected. So, I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, whether there's an expectation there or and if we fulfilled it, or whether it was a complete surprise for everybody. I mean, there was one particular moment I recall when listening to it for the first time, and I think because all my recent experience with Thor has been fire swans and riding those waves of volume as they go further and further upward. I can't remember the track it was, but there's a moment where you seem to rise towards that point and then dive straight back down. And I remember that being a particularly profound moment of subverted expectation for me based on, I guess, my own experience with how he handles dynamic and percussion, or at least when I've seen him in recent performances. Right. So I'd like to go to the main portion of Crucial Listening. Aidan, I've asked you to produce a list of three records that are important to you. And one thing I tend to ask, actually, is because I always am intrigued to see how people navigate that question. Was there a particular interpretation of the term important that you used as a way to bring these albums together? To a certain degree, yes. Um, Mainly that I wanted to represent sort of a spectrum of influences. Um, So not all metal, for example, or not all ambient, but something that kind of crosses both uh, my own interests and what I'm attempting or what I have and am attempting to do with my own music. You know, a question of trying to be diverse, but to represent not only my own output, but my own listening habits. Yeah, Uh, it's certainly been interesting to listen through to these records um, in the context of knowing that they mean something to you. Oh, Um, cool. Yeah, Um, especially with those that I've already heard previously. I think it's always nice to have a new angle with which to approach a record. But if you'd like to introduce your first album and also tell me uh, why this record is important to you. Okay, first album, uh, Big Black Songs About Fucking, uh, which I only just discovered recently. It's 30 years old this year. Yeah, uh, wow. Yeah, which is kind of, kind of a surprise. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but still, uh, interesting that it being 30 years old, it still sounds quite unique and fresh, I think. Uh, it's it's not an album I listen to all the time, but one that I come back to fairly regularly. And uh, each time I, I feel like, yeah, this is current, this is valid. And it's, uh, it's a band that I don't even know how I discovered. I think a uh, teenage friend and I who would go to the city center and, and dig through record shops picked it up one time when I was like 15 or so. And uh, my friend really hated it, but I really liked it. And then so I, I took it home with me and played it fairly incessantly as a teenager. What had you been listening to otherwise at that stage of your life? Where did Big Black fit into your frame of reference? This was right about the time I was starting to get into punk music more. Um, and and I think that's why we picked it up, because it was on Touch and Go. And we thought, oh, it's going to be a punk band. And it is punk, but it also isn't, um, which is what I liked about it, this punk 
mentality, but a very uh, different industrial texture to the sounds that was very not punk. So yeah, other other bands I was listening to at that time would be like you know Dead Kennedys or uh, some of the early Corrosion of Conformity stuff, uh, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles and things. So kind of I mean I don't want to say stupid punk, but I mean DRI is kind of silly. Uh, DK maybe is a little more intelligent, but um, Big Black kind of takes that that sort of political uh, antagonism of Dead Kennedys and then skews it and makes it much more sort of personal political things so the idea behind the lyrics which are relatively indecipherable but just from the song titles and uh, some of the texts about the songs there's there's such a different subject matter involved that most punks bands didn't really address even if it was political or or you know preaching smash the system or whatever this was more about smashing the internal system or the, the personal system that really struck me today actually i saw that you recently posted a rolling stone article about the record yeah which is great um yeah. i really loved uh, dave riley's quote and sickened him sickens him but uh, uh that was a bit of a surprise to see that uh, being posted in rolling stone <laughs> it was yeah but it, as as you say i mean i think it's a record that, as I listened to it over the past couple of days, still felt incredibly fresh. And I think it's one of those... You often get that experience where you listen to an album which previously felt very intense and then find that the uh, distance of time has sort of eroded that yeah. angularity, you know? Yeah. yeah, definitely. And this album definitely hasn't softened at all. It's still incredibly acerbic and, and nasty. I wonder what it would, must have been like for you as... I think, yeah, as you said, you were 14 or 15, was it, when you first heard this? Yeah, yeah, shortly after it came out, I guess. And the lyrical content, as you say, um, has this internal drive. And <laughs> something which I still find quite uncomfortable in that there's this embodiment of unpleasantness and this sort of theatrical sort of playing the role of that person. Yeah. Uh, which it's an interesting perspective for the band to take. You see this a lot in where, where people assume that everything that you say, as whether it's a lyric or write, is um, is you speaking. But one needs to separate you know the author from the character, and that doesn't happen very often in music. But when it does, it's interesting. But when people sometimes miss that connection, and I'm sure that happens with Big Black a lot. Do you think that could be anything to do with the fact that, I mean, as you say, you came from this from a punk perspective, which I guess um, a lot of the narrative in punk is very much, there's a sincerity to the lyricism. And as you say, there's a smash the system, which isn't always saying, parodying the system itself. It is kind of on the offense, on the system, to have that subverted in a music which still carries the same intensity. Do you think there's, yeah. an, I don't know, like people muddle the sincerity of punk sonically with that lyrical perspective that's taken on? Yeah, uh, well, I'd certainly punk can be quite effortlessly cliched in that regard because <laughs> you take you take those very simple tropes of, you know, fight the power or, and, you know, teenage rebellion. 
and you know you can only say it so many different ways but if you have a song about a guy killing somebody after a barbecue that has a whole different i don't know not only tonality but but layers of meaning and, and possible analysis behind it that just doesn't exist in a lot of other punk songs definitely brings me to thoughts of the fact that i think i discovered white house for the first time at around 15 oh really okay (laughs) Um, and again i you know i think i acknowledged that there wasn't a first person perspective going on but the unrest i think still exists even when you intellectualize that or it does for me anyway you know yeah but part of i think the unrest is part of the experience yeah, particularly, I think, in that article, he mentioned that during live performances, Albini would sort of act out some of the unpleasantries on stage, right? Yeah, yeah. What about the drum machine? Had you had experience of music up until that point that utilized the drum machine in that way? I mean, that still, as well, sounds very hard-hitting now, even in the advent of so much music that's yeah. doing that. Yeah, Um I guess the drum machine was relatively new to me at that point. Apart, I mean, I also listened to a lot of '80s pop, so the drum machine or the drum machines or drums made to sound mechanical certainly a pretty common sound. But the way, as in that article, they're talking about the use of the drum machine not as just a substitute drummer, but as an instrument itself, I thought was pretty interesting too. Not really something I really considered in the way Big Black uses use the drum machine but uh it is different than a lot of uh people who use drum machines as as simply you know a rhythm keeper or something it's so maybe i didn't appreciate it when i first listened to them the way they used the drum machine then but uh it is something now that i think okay yeah that's pretty interesting what they're doing with that and uh certainly it's an influence on what I've done with Nadia too, because the the drum machine is so integral to our sound in a way, and uh, and I am trying to make it sound not necessarily like a real drummer, but also not like a drum machine. So I was trying to find that middle ground of disguising the artificiality of it, but not making it human at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say. I definitely get the sensation with your music that the drum machine definitely justifies its right to exist as a drum machine i don't feel that does it justice i love the utilization of the rhythm within your music i think it's so distinctive but yeah i think there's one um, particular symbol sound as well that i recall hearing on a lot of your records when i was first getting into them which was nothing you could get out of a real kit i don't think but yeah exactly really cut into me you know what about Albini's music generally? Are there other bands or other projects uh, that he's involved in that you take a particular interest in? Well, I really like Shellac a lot, too. When I first heard it, I, it wasn't a big black replacement, which I guess I was kind of looking for, which is foolish to expect, but, um, well, whatever. Now I've, I've come to appreciate them quite a bit, and having seen them play live a couple times and finding i don't know that the live show is really impressive and just the way they play so effortlessly together and it's interesting to think that most of it's not improvised but they have this sort of looseness and freedom 
that's more associated with an improvisational group. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. I think there's definitely the sense that everything's kind of bulging out of the lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like very controlled chaos, but, but so perfectly controlled that you don't recognize it as chaos. Aiden, if I could have your second album, that would be grand and as well, if you could tell me why it's important to you as well. Uh, the second album is a collaboration between James Blotkin and Mark Spivey called A Peripheral Blur. It came out, I think, the end of the 90s, early 2000s, on Cranky. And uh, I knew Plotkin's work from his band OLD, which I was a pretty big fan of. And I kind of knew Mark Spivey's stuff with Dead Voices on there, but was less familiar with him. And uh, I hadn't heard the record at all when I picked it up, but because of the plucking name, I did. And um, I really felt an immediate connection to it as soon as I listened to it. I guess largely because it was around the same time that I was starting to do this more ambient-type music or drone-based music with guitar as a primary instrument. So it kind of, um, I don't know, uh, validated my, my musical decisions, I guess, because <laughs> <laughs> here was somebody making an album like, oh, this is what I want to do. This is the kind of style I've been experimenting with. And uh, yeah, it, it was like this immediate connection that I had to it. Yeah, I saw you write about the record, or at least a couple of tracks, maybe it was the whole record, where you spoke about the track Vaudelay having yeah. this deep resonance in spite of the fact that little actually it happens throughout the duration of it oh yeah it's super minimal yeah but but at the same time it's got it's very emotive which is something that i find lacking in a lot of ambient music and something that i try to include in my own because i don't know music should be emotive i, <laughs> I can agree with that the interesting thing that I think this record exploits so well is that it justifies itself so well as a work that utilizes repetition. Um, yeah. yeah. It's that implacable thing where even though it's coming back around so recurrently that it's warranted and that there's a deeper dive to be taken each and every time. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's not always apparent for me as to like why that is justify it like why why should i be re-looking at this this sonic image but it's something that i'm compelled to keep doing yeah. is that is there any part of that that i mean that's something i also get from your your work a lot of your albums i was listening only recently to the sea swells a bit again which is right. a personal favorite i mean is this is this an idea that you you connect with in terms of composing ambient music the idea that, that there's always something different in it, you mean? Or Yeah, even through the process of repetition. Yeah, most of my music is loop-based, but more, even if the loop is static or unchanging, the way 
I play with the loop changes it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to articulate, I guess, but certainly the idea that <laughs> things repeat, but as they repeat, they degrade or change somehow is kind of core to my method and what I'm, I'm trying to do. And I hear that in this album because it is all quite loop-based, but things move so subtly and and deceptively almost that it's really hard to hear it unless you, you're listening super closely. And this is one of those albums where you can hear different things if you're in different settings or you with repeat listens. It's a changed change songs somehow depending where you are or how intensely you're listening and stuff. And I, I kind of feel that's a cliche in a lot of cases with most albums because not a lot of, well, it's unfair to say not a lot of bands do that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of music that doesn't bear up to repeat listens like this. I think it was Mark Spivey. I found some like uh, interview quotes that accompanied this on Cranky where he said something that I think something about using obscurity as a means of granting the listener space in which to exist within the music. Yeah. Which is such a lovely idea. Yeah, that's really nice. Hmm. And that, that idea, too, is something I, I sort of incorporate with my, with my solo performances, or, or most performances, actually, the idea that it's, it's creating an inclusive sonic environment. So it's less about me playing something for a crowd than me trying to create something that envelops both myself and the audience. And so it becomes this shared space within the sound. Does that impress itself upon your stage demeanor at all? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a, a strange question, I guess. The only reason I, I asked that question, I think, is because seeing you perform live, um, when I've seen Nigel when play... When was the last time you saw us play? I don't recall. It was a, it was a few years back now. Um, I, I don't know whether there's been a, um, a shift since, but I noticed that quite a subdued demeanor to your performance which felt yeah. entirely appropriate there wasn't a like official fixed sort of fixation yeah was... well that that is quite conscious i think that we're attempting to take ourselves out of the equation you know, people aren't necessarily watching us perform we're trying to create an environment instead so i mean i mean you know people do watch us of course to see what we're doing to a certain degree but i think it's less about yeah being a spectacle and more about creating a sonic space. I think on that note as well, this record, this collaboration between Plotkin and Spivey seems very much in that vein, I guess, of the mid-90s post-rock that was being made at that time. I mean, I understand that at least Plotkin's portion is partly guitar-based. Um, yeah. And again, it's this obfuscation of the origin and that disconnection between like the source of instigation and like the the sound itself, which again, you know, I I, I think is a really interesting theme, and I think it makes a lot of those records sound pretty timeless in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's quite true. I know that you work with James quite regularly as a mastering engineer. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there anything that draws you to working with him in terms of the way that he treats your material? 
Well, I trust his ear to be quite blunt about it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I appreciate pretty much everything he's done, and uh, given the track record we've had with everything we've sent to him, I've always been happy with what he's done. So I think we share us a pretty, I don't know, a fairly similar sonic aesthetic, at least. Uh, so yeah, I've always found he, he's been quite. He's you know, quite quick with with his uh, his take on, on a master uh, his work with mastering to to do what we want and need. So yeah, I don't know whether it's just my lack of understanding of mastering or or the fact that a lot of um, quite deep and um, bass intense music gets sent his way. But any record with his stamp on it. I'm just always so taken aback by the handling of low frequencies in particular. It just seems so exact. I don't know if that's him or not. I think it is, yeah. Um, and I think you can hear it on this record that the bass is, is quite subtle, but it's really kind of interestingly there in the way it moves and the, and the, the pulse, pulse of it, I guess, particularly on that track, Void Lay, because it's quite buried underneath, but it's really heavy. Oh man, there's a moment, or there's several times on that track where the bass kind of drops to a different note, and it's only then you realise that it actually has a presence within the music. Yeah, exactly. And if I could have your final record, Aidan, that would be great. Final record is uh, Stina Nordenstam's Dynamite. And uh, Stina is a Swedish singer and guitarist. From what I've heard, she's a recluse and doesn't leave the house. So I think she had a brief spate of performances at the beginning of her career and, uh, and then stopped performing live entirely. And as far as I know, she hasn't made music for the last 10 years or so. Her earlier work is kind of jazz-ish, pop jazz, I guess, in a way. And and her later work is a little more Swedish-sounding, Swedish-pop-sounding, but in a a kind of indie-pop kind of way. But this album, Dynamite, um, I've always described as an underwater grunge album, because (laughs) it's... It has this sort of crunchy guitar of a grunge, a grunge band, but it's so diffuse and and vague and underwater sounding that um, yeah, it really has this bizarre charm that I, that I really like. Uh, it's also incredibly uh, depressing and mod- well, not maudlin, but uh, sad. <laughs> <laughs> for word. Uh, it's a very bleak record but it has this yeah this weird charm to its bleakness yeah i had no idea what to expect when i listened to this and it was really uh quite a bizarre one to grapple with i think within a short space of time i'm gonna yeah. need to give it more 
it's not an accessible album either. Like her other work is probably easier to get into, but this one, this album has more of a sort of an overlying tone to it that the other albums don't as much. Of uh, this sort of off kilter grunge pop sort of feel. Did you come into this record first, or had you heard her albums previous to this one before? No, this was the first one I heard, and uh, I think a friend of mine played it for me once, and I was enthralled as soon as I heard it. What is this? I have to find this and track it down. And uh, I've since tracked down all the other records too, but this is all. This is definitely my favorite, even if the other ones have some nice tunes on them as well. Is this the kind of record that gets shed in a certain light once you've heard the material either side of it as well? It feels like it might be that way. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I don't know. Again, it was kind of like the big black to shellac uh, thing where I was looking for more of the same and didn't get it. Right. So <laughs> the rest of her catalog was never quite as satisfying as this one. Um, there's one other album of hers that's... Uh, mostly, I think it's all cover songs, which has a kind of a similar feel. And it's it, that one is my next favorite after after Dynamite, mainly because it has this similar tonality to it. I, I guess compared to the rest of the catalog, it makes this one that much specialer, that much more special, using my superlatives properly, uh, <laughs> because of its uniqueness in a way. Yeah, because it feels... I haven't heard the other releases yet, but um, I'm always fascinated when you read about an artist who starts on on the rails, I guess, in a pop sense, yeah. and, and falls off them. Um, you know, so I think of people like Scott Walker or Talk Talk or... Yeah. And my listening is so informed by speculation as to what happened in the interim. And for some bands, I guess that's quite explicit. Like Talk Talk were always very vocal about the influences that dragged them that way, but... Is, was there any indication as to why she kind of took this new tact after working with Impulse? I really, I really don't know, actually. I, I, other than, uh, I think I've read a bit that it was something of a response to the the, the realities of you know, performing live and and trying to tour her first couple albums that were these more jazzy pop things, that, and her realizing that she just did not like that experience at all. So maybe it was an antagonistic record in a way that she wanted to alienate people with it. Or maybe maybe it was something that she felt was more true to herself. After being out in the world, she realized more about herself and this is what she created. Uh, this is just speculation. But, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting, though, that if it was born out of that, because it does feel like a very uh, anti-live record. There's yeah. so much deliberate placement on there. You couldn't perform this. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I think much of it was recorded in her, in her bathroom or something because it has this weird echoey uh, tiled wall feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, that's in, and, and in fact, the juxtaposition that really struck me and it keeps coming back throughout the record, but I think it's the second track is the first time you hear it, is the, the strings that come in. Um, yes, because they're so lush sounding and yeah, yeah, against this very angular, odd sounding guitar drum. So, yeah, yeah, just poking in through the bathroom window, it's quite surreal the first time that happens. Yeah, and um, there's also uh, 
I think it's the last track where it breaks into this moment of distortion that completely jars within the bit with with, with the section prior. Yeah. Um, it sounds the spit of a Yezu track. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that distortion is kind of the Yezu sound. Yeah, just sounds like it's the chords crumbling into its own distortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to definitely spend more time with this one because I think as you've highlighted here and also my first listen has indicated that I come away with more questions than I have answers. Right. <laughs> Which is always nice in the Were there uh, any uh, honorary mentions in anything that nearly made the cut? Yeah, well, I, I definitely thought about putting a Godflesh album in there, speaking of Yuzu. Um, oh, wow. And it probably would have been pure, because that was the first Godflesh album that I remember buying. Um, but uh, I, I think Big Black took precedent over it, at least in terms of formative music since I heard it at least you know, two or three years prior. So it was kind of that first that first uh, introduction to this sort of industrial, weird punkness sound, which, and, you know, probably most people don't put compare Big Black and Godflesh because they're pretty different sounding, but they do have that similar washy guitar sound and the, the drum machine, of course. So there are some similarities. And uh, one, another album was Con 8's debut another of Plotkin's projects, but I decided to go for the, the ambient record because, yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> That's quite bit. a decision to make. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty opposite extremes, but kind of both equally influential in a way, but uh, yeah, a peripheral blur was, came up just that bit sooner, so it's maybe a little more important. Testament as well, I guess, to Plotkin's own spectrum of interest uh, yeah exactly <laughs> uh, but also with Kanye, the that idea of of the sonic environment is is pretty prevalent in their music yeah, i don't know if you ever saw them live but they were so present both in terms of their their physical appearance on stage and the, just the wall of sound that they created but also in that sort of a facing way that we do that it wasn't necessarily about the performance more about the experience of the sound. I'm so jealous. When did you see them? We uh, actually, uh, one of our very first shows in Montreal was opening for them in 2005. And we played with them in Montreal and Toronto two nights. Uh, I just saw those two shows, but yeah, they were pretty impressive. I've seen Noor. Alan's other project, yeah. Yeah, so... I've got a taste of the, um, I guess, menace that he brings. Yes. <laughs> Which is funny because he's kind of such a nice guy in, when he's not on stage. <laughs> Very gentle and kind of, you know, a little goofy sort of, you know, quirky humor kind of thing. But uh, yeah, 
when he's on stage, it, he transforms quite completely. Yeah. I guess he gets it all out. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, actually, the parallel you, you uh, draw between Godflesh. Well, I say parallel. A toss-up between Godflesh and Big Black. Because, yeah. actually, I never really thought about it, but I guess if I was to draw a Godflesh record alongside that Big Black record, it would probably be pure. Because the guitar tone on that, I guess, is so much more shrill. Yeah, and quite similar. And with Robert Hampson's extra guitar on, on pure, I think that's a big part of it. Because he has that very washy kind of sound. You don't think of Big Black as being washy necessarily, but the the guitar is just so much treble that it, it there's a there's an overtone created in there that's just a sort of wash of sound underneath the riffs going on. Totally, and I think it's uh, gosh, King of the Jews. You almost get a hint of that wash coming in. Yeah, yeah, and that's almost well, kind of a shoegaze track, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that. I forgot about that track and then it caught me off guard all over again <laughs> when I listened back to the album. Yeah, yeah. Aiden, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk about these records with me. My pleasure. If people want to check out your own music, what you're up to, uh, where's the best place for them to be headed? Well, if they wanted to go straight to the listening, I have uh, a various Bandcamp pages with most of my projects. Uh, you just go to aidenbaker.bandcamp.com. You can get to most of them from there. Uh, that's the easiest. And then, yeah, Facebook pages as well. So search on Facebook and you'll probably find them. I'll include as many links as I'm permitted to fit into the podcast description. I don't know what the limit is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you so much once again and to everyone listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>